Okay. Yesterday we did our introductory class about spheres, yes? Yes. Okay. So now we can move on to learning Tanya? Yes. <laughs> okay. So what I usually do is I give an introductory class about Tanya every time we have a new semester or such. Um, the reason was because Tanya has five sections. First section is 53 chapters. And if I started at the beginning, every time we had a new group of people, I just keep teach the same two or three chapters the rest of my life. And I have lots of compassion for myself. <laughs> so I decided not to do that. And I just teach it in order. So if you show up and we're holding chapter 22, then you're going to learn chapter 22. Which is inconvenient if you don't know what happened in the first 21 chapters, or you have no context for the Tanya, or no context for Chassidus. So, the first class or so um, will be an introduction to Chassidus in general, Tanya in particular, and a summary of the first 21 chapters of Tanya, because we're going to be studying chapter 22. Um, if we finish this in one class, that's great. If we don't, we'll do it in the next Tanya class. All right. Yesterday, I'm sure you all remember, I threw in a controversial idea in the middle of the discussion of the spheres. Remember, anyone remember what that was? That, yeah, that the, 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 the mystic, when he's having his genuine mystical experiences, right, becomes a continuation of the spheres and becomes the channel to which God influences the world, right? So... Um, I have to introduce Chassidus, as I said, and what I like to do is vary the way I introduce Chassidus, because often people were here the last time I introduced Chassidus, so um, there's many different ways you can present something, so I'm going to present it differently than the way I did it last time. There are many um, ways to approach Judaism. Every way in which one approaches Judaism has a certain metaphysical structure behind it. Just give a very simple example. You may approach Judaism with a sense that there's a God, he created the world, he will reward you with lots of goodies if you do what he says, and he will punish you horribly if you don't do what he says, unless you do what he says, or try to anyway, and hope he forgives you when you don't do what he says. Um, And... That might be as simple as that. And obviously, in your metaphysics is a rather, you know, kind of God is like a super powerful person and the world is just the world and it's kind of that simple, right? Um, whereas if you um, think about, for instance, Hashem as the source of morality, as we become more, more moral, we become closer to Hashem and the Torah is a guide to that. So there's a different way of approaching Judaism and it has a kind of different kind of metaphysics, right? There's a kind of a, a ladder reaching up towards Hashem, right? I mean, the ladder of morality. So there's different ways of approaching Judaism and they have, each has a kind of different metaphysics. It's not necessarily that one is right and one is wrong. Sometimes these can be reconciled in more complex ways of thinking. Um, but since this is an introduction to Tanya, which is Chassidus, we're going to talk about the approach of Chassidus and the metaphysics of Chassidus. Um, Chassidus is approaching Judaism from the basis that every Jew has a godly soul. What is a godly soul? What? 
It's a piece of God. God comes in little pieces. It's like cake. Everyone gets a little slice. No. So, this idea of every Jew having a godly soul is not an original idea of Hasidus. What is original of Hasidus is to turn that as to the, make that the central axis around which the entire Judaism focuses. Okay. So, what is a godly soul? So, yesterday we learned about the spheres, correct? Yeah. Okay. So, I want you to imagine the spheres as a single entity, like a person, right? A person has complexity, right? We have, a, for instance, our body, right? We have a head, we've got arms, we've got legs, right? But despite all the complexity and differentiation, at the end of the day, we are one single person, right? And so, if you think of the spheres as one single thing, in fact, the allusion to the spheres in, in the scripture is the idea that when the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, one of the allusions, sees the divine chariot, upon the chariot he sees the image of an Adam, of a person. And that in Kabbalah is understood to be the spheros as a united whole. Um, okay. So, if a person has a child, is that child a continuation of the pers- original person, or are they a separate being, or both? Hello. They are both. So what if the spheros had a child? What would, the, what would what, in other words, it's not like a, it's not like a, just a strict continuation of the spheros, right? It's like a child of the spheros. So there's, it's like a, the spheros, but in derivative and miniature form. That's what a godly soul is. So instead of the spheros being something that is outside of the Jew and the Jew refines themselves and, and works on themselves so that they can actually have an awareness, a perception of godliness through the spheros, as we discussed yesterday, which would be more of a Kabbalistic approach, the focus on Hasidus is that um, even though the spheros may exist outside of you, in some interesting sense, they exist inside of you. Now, this is not to be confused with what I said yesterday, that there is an, an analog to the spheros in the human psyche. Okay? This is saying that just like um, every human being is made of flesh and blood, and that flesh and blood is um, imbued with a human uh, soul, Right? with the human psyche, a human spirit, etc., with all of that entails, that we can look at the human being as a whole and think of that within that, in a Jew, there is kind of a soul within the soul, and that is actually the spheres, but not the original spheres, but a child of the spheres. So everything that is true of the spheres is true of the godly soul. And so what you end up having is like this. It's not simply that I am supposed to refine myself so I can experience this awareness of God that is without, from outside of me, and thus, my life becomes a channel for God in this world. But rather, you are already a channel of God in this world because there's a little miniature spherous Adam thing called the godly soul already in the living inside of you. And because it's already living inside of you, it is already actively engaged in the world. Okay. So to use a, a, a metaphor, okay? Um, if a parent um, has some kind of a inherent quality, 
let's say the parent is a person, so they have the inherent quality of reason. What automatically follows that their children have? Reason. Reason. Okay? So now when the child is acting rational in their own life, in some sense, it's a continuation of the parent's reason, right? Now, it's not the pa- now the, it, this is interesting because it's not the parent themselves, right? But in some sense, a continuation. So if the spheres are how God engages with the world, as we discussed yesterday, and you have a soul, which is like a child of the spheres inside of you, then what is your life already from the outset without you doing any kind of refinement whatsoever, without you working on yourself at all? It's already, in some sense, God interacting with the world. But the thing is, the godly soul does not necessarily have full mastery over the person that it inhabits. In other words, there is tension between the person as a human being and the godly soul which lives within the human being. And so Hasidus is a way of Judaism that deals with Torah and mitzvahs and life from that perspective, focusing on that perspective, tapping into that, etc., etc., etc. And there's many, many types of Hasidus and forms of Hasidus. Um, Hasidus as an approach to Judaism is really an um, a re- innovation of the Baal Shem Tov. Okay. Um, one of the consequences that many things that are true of souls have to now become true of people. So I'm going to give you, we'll start with the most controversial of them. Okay. So remember what I said how um, if if um, the parent has some kind of intrinsic quality as part of their being, then the child will have it as well, right? Such as human beings are rational, human beings have faculty of speech. Um, there are things that are not intrinsic, like you, you may have a particularly favorite food, but that doesn't mean your children necessarily have that as your favorite food, right? You may like somebody, doesn't mean that they like somebody. Those are, those are things that are variable within the experience of a person. But there are things that are intrinsic to being a person, right? Well, one of the things that's intrinsic to God and consequently is manifest in the spheres is the absolute unity of God, yes? Mm-hmm. So what does that mean about all the different little children of the spheres, all the different little godly souls? That's one. So that must mean there is in some sense a unity of all souls, right? So there is, a, there is the notion that there are souls which unite the souls. And the, same, and the analogy for this is like a brain where the brain is an organ that create, gives unity to the entire body. Okay? Um, and the brain is also what allows the body to house the psyche, but it also means that the body functions as an organic whole. So this idea that there are souls that unite all the souls is like not a controversial idea in mysticism. Okay? But what happens when you take this idea of the godly soul and you make that central to how Jews are now supposed to approach their actual lived experience of Judaism, even if they're not mystics. Now you create a sociological phenomenon that you need a Jew which unites all the Jews. See how that shift gets made? Okay. This is where you get the Hasidic innovation of the Hasidic Rebbe, or the centrality of the Tzaddik, which is one, actually one of the first things, even before we get to Chabad, one of the first shifts you see by the Baal Shem Tov about Hasidic Judaism versus non-Hasidic Judaism is the absolute centrality of the Hasidic Rebbe or Tzaddik in the life of the Hasidic Jew. Yeah. Back to your analogy of like the parent having intrinsic qualities. Mm-hmm. If God is intrinsically one, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be intrinsically in all the souls? Like why does there need to be one that unites all of them? Um, 
the way, without getting into all the complexities of this, but the way the unity of God is made manifest through the spheres is the effect of one sphere on the other spheres. That's just the structure of how it works. So then you're going to copy that within the souls, you're going to have the same thing. So much like the body, and to the much like the brain unites the body, it's actually the sphere of Chachma that creates the unity in the other spheres. And thus, when you then play that out, there's this, those souls which are, um, and this gets, those souls which the Chachma is the, is, the, is the kind of primary characteristic of them have a unifying effect on their adjacent souls and then this nestles up until you have, borrowing a phrase from Lord of the Rings, one soul to rule them all. Those of you who get the reference. Um, so you see this play out, by the way, in the way the Kabbalists understand the notion of the, the, the Jews in the desert, right? That the Jews are subsumed under these patriarchal families, which are subsumed under clans, which are subsumed under tribes, which all have their leaders, which are subsumed under Moshe. Um, and this understanding can actually be the structure of the souls. Um, so you, you are correct that unity does not have to take that form of integrating into integrating different parts into kind of a... A, a transcendent whole, right? God did not have to express his unity in that way, but that, that's the structure of the spheres and thus that's the structure of the souls and thus that then is true not just of each individual soul within itself or any cluster of souls, but actually all the souls writ large and actually not even in any one point in time, actually throughout all of history. So you would actually, from a Kabbalistic point of view, you would say that the soul of, of Mashiach is like the, the actual ultimate version of all of that overall. Um, but... Um, so what that means now is that all of a sudden you have a, a Judaism which is, which is placing another person very much in the center of the religious life. And I just want to describe this a little bit because this is helpful to set up what the Tanya is. Okay. So without the Hasidic approach, without that kind of metaphysical backing, whether the person's conscious aware of the metaphysics or not, you say this, okay, I am a person. I have a covenant with God that I was born into or, or, or chose to accept if I converted, whatever the case might be. And that covenant comes with all sorts of obligations. <coughs> and other people play roles in those things. For instance, I may not know exactly what the proper way to practice the commandments are. And so I have to speak to an expert in the commandments, right? We call this a rabbi, right? Or I might not have the wisdom to know the appropriate way to make a value judgment in my life. And I might speak to someone who is more um, wise and God-fearing than I am, right? So we might call this a sage. Notice how I differentiated those two. Okay. There's a rabbinic authority and there's someone who's a sage. Those are, I mean, we would like to think that people with rabbinic authority also are sages, but they, they may not be. Someone might be very expert in being able to tell you whether a piece of food is kosher and um, you really shouldn't ask them advice about like, the proper way to raise your children. They're just not good at that. And there are people who like really know how to raise God-fearing children, but they can be easily confused about the intricacies of Jewish law. Those are inherently two different things. Um, and then, you know, maybe some God has a direct message for you. And so maybe someone has prophetic, you know, maybe someone's a prophet, right? That's an idea as well. And then we have the idea of the king. We have the idea of the Kohen, the priest, when we talk about the, the idea of the temple, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So there's people that play different roles, right? Um, we have the idea of... Uh, of communal leadership because we, because Judaism is practiced not just individually communally, so there has to be notion of communal leadership. So whether that's the rabbi or community council, whatever the case might be, but there's that aspect of Judaism. Um, 
And there's, for instance, the idea that we, we do certain mitzvahs as a community. So the idea of like praying with a minion, there's a leader of the, of like the shliach tzibor. There's these different, but at the end of the day, each person is occupying a specific role within a particular function, either because the individual is incapable of doing that thing themselves. They're not expert in Jewish law. They don't have the wisdom or they're too biased to, to seek counsel themselves for themselves. They don't have prophetic um, voices speaking to them. So they need to find an actual prophet. Um, you know, they're not the communal leader. Somebody needs to do that job, right? That God didn't appoint the priest, whatever the case might be. But fundamentally, no human being is central to their Judaism. Does that make sense? Now, is my soul, now if I introduce the idea of the godly soul, the godly soul is clearly central to my Judaism. Now, that makes sense, right? If the godly soul, the Hasidic view is that whatever that godly soul is, that it's kind of this miniature child of the spheros, or if you want to think of another analogy, if the spheros are like a bonfire, the godly soul is like a spark that comes off of the bonfire. It's another analogy that's used. So then obviously me managing my relationship with that, that godly soul that lives within me is obviously of central importance to my Judaism and everything are like spokes that go around that central hub, right? But then if we take into account that the soul is just part of a larger nexus of souls, and there's a soul that unifies all those souls and gives them their true godly sense, then what happens to the person who that central soul lives within that person? What happens to my relationship with that person? That person becomes central to the Judaism. Okay? So, you, so what, ends up, what ended up happening, one of the shifts that happened with the Baal Shem Tov is that people all of a sudden would start traveling to a tzaddik, traveling to a, a Hasidic Rebbe, not for the express purpose of gaining more knowledge in Torah, not for the purpose of they needed advice, not for the purpose of they needed someone to give them prophetic guidance, not because they were the leader of the community, but was simply by traveling to this person and maintaining a relationship with this person, the bond between the souls went from something that existed in some ethereal spiritual realm into something that was actually manifest psychologically in how they lived their lives. Okay. Um, you guys ever watch the gem videos that they put out for mm-hmm. the, yes. the, the mm-hmm. Living Torah? Mm-hmm. So they put out a Living Torah last, this past week about the, uh, the Rebbe's job description. I don't know if anyone saw it. So that's the same idea, right? That's the same idea. So the job of a Rebbe is to, figure, to help a person get in touch with their soul. And the metaphysics of that is because, like, you know, if something isn't working right in your body, you're not, like, doing something right. At the end of the day, which organ is responsible for the self-correction mechanism? Like if you're walking and your walking is not done, done properly or you're, you're writing and you can't, you're not holding the pen properly, right? Or, you, or you're not playing, or you want to learn how to play a musical instrument and your fingers don't know how. At the end of the day, which organ is responsible? The brain, right? The brain's like, oh, no, no, do it this way, do it this way. And, and then you'll, so that, and then that ends up playing out. And so the relationship between the, the, the chassid and the tzaddik becomes now central. And this became one of the kind of hallmark splits in, in Europe between the Hasidic Jews and the non-Hasidic Jews is that the Hasidic Jews would travel to the Rebbe to be with the Rebbe. And like, what's the point? The point is somehow that relationship um, gets the person or facilitates that person being in touch with their own godly soul because of, because of the inherent relationship between the souls. Okay? So far so good? Okay. So the Hasidic movement starts with the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov has 60 disciples. What I mean by disciples are people that were not just um, followers of the Baal Shem Tov, but people that the Baal Shem Tov actually was able to bring them to 
be able to do the same thing that the Baal Shem Tov did. So they became the Rebbes or Tzaddikim of other people in their own right. The Baal Shem Tov passed away. Um, and so you now have this group of, you know, Baal Shem Tov copies, right? We can call them the Hasidic Rebbes, right? the Hasidic Masters, however you want to call them. And um, the idea was that they should maintain some kind of unity. They should maintain a kind of, there, there, is a, there is an element of a movement here, right? So there should be some kind of coordination. So it needs to be a leader of the movement. Now notice how I'm shifting, there's a, the leader of the movement. In other words, these all 60 people saw the Baal Shem Tov as their, the one, the one they were in touch with to bring, to bring their soul into full fruition. And then they had the power to do that with others, as opposed to just the other followers of Baal Shem Tov, or just recipients of the effect. Um, and they weren't looking for someone to replace the Baal Shem Tov in their lives, but they were looking for someone to create the cohesion amongst them. Um, and they initially gave it to the Baal Shem Tov's son. Do anyone know why they would do that? Because he has an extension of... No, because in, in Jewish law, we believe in nepotism, <laughs> which is that if someone holds a public position and the son um, or is, is reasonably qualified for the position, then they have first dibs on it. <laughs> that, that's actually a thing in Jewish law. <laughs> you know, it messes with people's sense of meritocracy, but that's the case. Um, but the, the, his son... Um, Tzvi had a, a vision where the Baal Shem Tov came to him and told him that he should not be the leader. In fact, a different disciple, um, the Magad of Mizrit should be. And so the first anniversary of the Baal Shem Tov's passing, he publicly switched places with the Magad of Mizrich, um, and the Magad of Mizrich became the leader. He, so he has a bunch of, so there's a bunch of these Hasidic Rebbes who are like semi, they're on a spiritual level, his equals, but on a kind of an organizational level, he's the one in charge. He then, some of those younger ones really, be, some of the more junior ones really become his disciples and he gets some more disciples and he ends up with 120 disciples. Um, and he sends them out all over to, for the most part, to function as this kind of Hasidic Rebbe model in various locations throughout Eastern Europe. Okay? Um, and he basically just stays in the town of Mizrich as opposed to traveling around like the Balshemto did. Uh, you've heard of uh, Eli Wiesel? Mm-hmm. So Eli Wiesel was interviewed many times about the Rebbe, and there's one interview where he says, people say the Rebbe was like the Baal Shem Tov, but I think he was more like the Magid because the Rebbe just stayed in his room in Brooklyn and had his people go all over the world and affect the world while he stayed in one place, which is Magid's model of doing things, where the Baal Shem Tov actually traveled around to inspire people and touch people and connect them to their souls. Anyway, um, when the Magid passed away, so a decision was made not to really appoint a central leader and that every one of the Magad's disciples would have autonomy to continue this Hasidic approach in their geographic region um, as they saw fit. And, and they basically took a map of Eastern Europe and they divided it up and everyone got a territory and that was that. Um, and so the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, he was a disciple of the Magad Mizrich, who was actually his youngest disciple. And he also got a slice of territory. Um, and his, for interesting historical reasons, his territory got very, very big um, because in Eastern Europe, you could kind of make a dividing line between um, what could loosely be called, although not, is not technically correct, Russia and Poland. It's not really Russia, and it's not really Poland, but that's how they talk about it. 
Um, and basically, the strong antagonism to, to the Hasidic movement was in so-called Russia. So we're talking about places like Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, Russia proper, um, White Russia, etc. And then you go to place... Right. This was antagonism all the way to, to the Hasidic movement generally. And so all the Hasidic Rebbe's from that region, for the most part, um, just decided that it wasn't worth it, and they left. <laughs> and so the Alter just ended up becoming one of the only Hasidic Rebbe's really in that region. Um, not the only one, but one of the only ones. Whereas in southern, you know, more of the southern areas and, and Poland and those kinds of areas, there was much less antagonism, and, and the Hasidic movement basically became the established rabbinic establishment very quickly. So that's just an interesting historical note. The Alter Rebbe changed the form of Hasidus. So again, Hasidus is the idea that like, just like these spheres are the conduit which way God connects to the world, this, there is a, every Jew contains a little spark of the spheres, a little child of the spheres. That's what we mean when we say it's a piece of God from above. Going back to class yesterday, we can talk about the spheres as if they're God, but they're not really God. Okay. Um, and that because of the unity of the souls, right, the, those central souls, those called so-called general souls, the relationship with them needs to now be embodied in the, in the, in the real world. It's not just enough for the souls to be connected if we're trying to make the, the Judaism every Jew centered around that godly soul. Um, and what the Alter Rebbe innovated, and this was not his own idea to do so, he was instructed by the Magadim's Rich to do so, was to change the form of Hasidus from something that worked primarily through the encounter with the tzaddik or the rebbe, awakening or touching or sensitizing you to your own godly soul, to the, the tzaddik teaching you how to be a stable embodiment of the soul. You can make this very, very oversimplified and say it's the difference between giving a man a fish and teaching a man to fish, but it's not 100% that difference. Because if I'm doing the work, it's not just that I'm doing the work, it's that it's supposed to be integrated. Okay? So we have many experiences in life that are very meaningful, they're very profound, and they are not integrated into our life. Okay? Getting even an example of an experience that's not integrated into your life, God willing, you'll get married. You'll experience the wedding. Right? You'll experience standing under the chuppah, etc., etc. That experience, by and large, will not be integrated into your life. Why not? It's an important part of your life. Wedding is a one-time thing. It's a one-time thing, but the things that happen one time for technical reasons, it's, it's actually something which fundamentally departs from real life. Right? Day-to-day life has routine. Day-to-day life has a certain structure. Day-to-day life has responsibilities. Um, and so there is, a, there is something very transcendent about it, and that's very meaningful and continue to have an effect on you. And you can integrate its effects. But like that experience, like if you go back to that moment, you kind of divest yourself of the, of the actual life that you live, right? Let's take that in contrast, raising children as a couple is, if it's going to be done effectively, must be integrated, right? You have to take care of the groceries and you have jobs and there's actual children. It's a day-to-day thing, right? So the kind of connection that's formed in that joint activity is a very different kind of sense of, of bonding. And it's not that one is better than the other, but they are different, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So in the language of Hasidus, this is often what's called makif, surrounding versus panini, within. 
Um, but we can say some things are more, experiences are more transcendent and some things are more integrated. And the Alter Rebbe's restructuring wasn't just changing the fact that you have to do work yourself and not just kind of throw it all on the tzaddik, but more specifically that the soul should become an integrated part of your life rather than a transcendent experience. So the hallmark of Chabad Hasidus was that your soul, for lack of words, became boring. Your soul is normal. Your soul is daily life rather than your soul is being something which is profound. And this actually became a point of tension between the, the, the Chabad tradition and the non-Chabad schools. Um, the, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a cute story to illustrate this, that the, the, there was a Hasidic Rebbe. I think it was the Munkachi Rebbe, but I, I could be mistaken, so don't quote me on this. And the people listening on the internet will not quote me on this. But there's, there was one Hasidic Rebbe, and he was traveling on a train in the 1800s, and he comes back to his Hasidim, and he says, I, I, I met a Russian Hasid on the train, which means one of the, presumably one of the Chabad branches. Chabad eventually branched out to many different branches. Lubavitch was just one branch. Um, and he says, let me tell you the difference between the Russian Hasidim and us. And he said, so I asked the Russian Hasid where he was going. He says, he's coming back from spending the month of Tishrei with his Rebbe. And I said, ah, did you... Um, did, 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 you know, how was the Rebbe's, uh, the Rebbe's davening? Like, he, did he lead the, he let the davening? And he says, what do you think, my Rebbe's a chazan? <laughs> like, like, what do you mean? He's a, he, he's a cantor? He didn't lead the davening. He says, so he said, oh, well, I mean, did he, how was the blowing of the shofar? He says, what do you think? He's a trumpeteer? Like, <laughs> his job is to blow the shofar? Some guy blew the shofar. Someone in the shul blew the shofar. So he says, well, well the, the, his words of inspiration he says, yeah, what words of inspiration? What do you think? He's a preacher? <laughs> so, so he says, so, uh, you know, uh, and, you know what, what about the Simcha story? He says, what do you think? My Rebbe is a dancer? He says, so what, what did you go for? He says, I went to be with my Rebbe. Let me ask you a question. You ever, like adults ever go visit their parents or their relatives? Yes. Why? Just to be with them because they're part of their lives, right? Does the relative have to do something? <laughs> okay, right? It's not about, right? The idea is that this is such a normalized part of my life. I went to go spend, the, and, and you know, we were in the same shul together. We daven together, right? My father comes and visits me and we go to shul together. Like, I don't know, we sat in shul together. Like, I don't know, that's good enough. Like, if he wants to talk, we'll talk. If he doesn't talk, we don't talk. The idea that it's so, it's deep, but normalized. And he says, by us, he says, everything has to be an experience. And I'm not trying to, you know, obviously being Chabad, I, I fall into one side of the other of that dispute, but it's a legitimate difference of opinion. Um, and what that ended up doing was causing a split. And so the Alter Rebbe's version of Chassidus got renamed by his opponents called Chabad, which stands for Chachma Bin and Das, which are the rational parts of the soul. Because the idea is that if you're going to be taught by the tzaddik how to integrate the soul into your life and normalize it, well, then you're going to have to do that with your reason because that's how we do things like, right? When we, when we want to approach things in a way where they're normalized, where they're integrated, right? We, we don't look to make them as exciting and as flashy. We look to process them, which is not the same thing as over-intellectualizing, just to be fair, although it can lead to that sometimes. And so the Alter Rebbe started this different approach and um, some of his 
other Hasidic Rebbe's were in favor of it, although they didn't approach that, such as Rebbe Levi Yitzchel and some were highly antagonistic to it, such as Rebbe Avram Kalisker. Um, and eventually, there was a problem, which is that this kind of being a Rebbe, being a Tzaddik, requires that you actually have an educational encounter with the Chassid. And education has to be individualized. Um, Many of you have been to college. Yes. A person standing up and lecturing to a room of 300 people is not education. Right? Right. Okay. <laughs> now, that is a way of delivering information, which it may be part of education, but that alone is not education, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, do you know where that comes from just historically? Greece? Shortage of books. No. Medieval, universities are the medieval times, and how many copies did you think they have of the book? One. So the lecturer read the book to the students and then explained it as he was reading it. Like, that's, that's where that comes from. Okay. Um, so part of that was that the, the, the Al-Tareb and the succeeding Chabad Rebbe, so they would say Hasidic discourses, like actual lectures of discussing the ideas. But that's, there was also the need for Yechi, this private audience, where there was guidance as to what you need to be doing in order to integrate to sensitize yourself to your soul, integrate your soul into your life, normalize the experiences of the soul, etc., etc., etc. And the Altar writes, this became not tenable because there's just too many people and not enough time. So what did he do? He wrote a book. And this is unique in the history of the Hasidic world because the Tanya is actually an organized book. All the other Hasidic works up till that point, and for the most part, basically all the ones that come afterwards, are collections of Hasidic thoughts, often arranged according to the weekly Torah reading. So you usually like open up to like, you know, Parshas Bashalach and just read a Hasidic insight in Parshas Bashalach, and if it touches you or moves you, or like whatever. Um, in fact, most of the Chabad books are still like that. But the Tanya was actually written as a, as a, as a, as a, a replacement for that one-on-one guidance. And so it's very structured. It starts at the beginning. It lays down foundational principles. It builds it. it right? um, now, you still have a problem, which is you can't exactly take a book, throw it at a person, and say, well, educate yourself. That does not work. And the main reason why it doesn't work um, is because when you read something, you have only yourself to reference in terms of if you understood it correctly. Um, this is why, or one of the explanations why God did not really give the Torah primarily in written form. Right? We're all familiar with the fact that there's the Chumash, the five books of Moses. Um, there's ultimately the 24 books of the Tanakh, the scripture. But the Torah, by and large, is not written in a book. I mean, eventually got, things got written down. It was oral Torah. And the main reason, or one of the main reasons for that is that if you have oral teachings, you, ins- you can ensure that people understand them. Because, like, right now I'm talking to you, if... Someone doesn't understand something, they can That's ask. Right? I can come back today and base things on what I said yesterday. And if you don't see the point of connection, it tells me you didn't get what I was saying yesterday, right? That interaction, right? But once you have a book, you have to kind of just imagine where the reader is holding, what the reader knows, what the reader would be bothered by, right? And the reader might take things completely out of context. So the Alter Rebbe right away in the introduction, says that this book is not meant to be used on its own. It is meant to be used in conjunction with people who have already had this guidance. In other words, people who have already 
further along down this path and actually know how to implement it, they should be teaching the people. Right? So it's very much like the structure of the Torah at large, where the book is meant to be a guide to the oral teaching. And then when the person has enough mastery of the teachings themselves, they can study it maybe on their own. But it's not meant to actually replace the human contact. Um, and thus, the, it could have a, this approach could have a further reach. Um, the other thing that's interesting story is that many of the chassidim complained that they did not understand the Tanya. And they took this complaint to, I believe it was the Alter Rebbe's brother. And then he took it to the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe said, well, you can't take half of a thing. He says, if you, if you, don't, if you don't have a sensitivity to Nagina, to music, then you can't understand the Tanya. In other words, that as much as the Tanya is a book that is meant to be studied and analyzed and applied, there is a way that one has to be in touch with parts of themselves that are not linguistic, that come through music, and those feed off of each other. And so the Alter Rebbe then um, dedicated himself to teaching the Chassidim how to be in touch with themselves through music, which is, you get the whole tradition of Chassidic Chabad music. So that's just an interesting side point. So now you have a book, and the book is meant to teach you how to not just awaken your soul, be in touch with your soul, be aware of your soul, the godly soul, but actually how to integrate it, make it normal. Okay. Um, and it's very structured. Okay. So that's an introduction of Hasidus through Chabad to the Tanya and why there's a kind of, at least in the Chabad tradition, centrality of learning Tanya. So I'm going to stop here and ask if there's any questions on what I said before moving on to the next part where I'm just going to start summarizing 21 chapters of Tanya. No questions? Well, I actually have one. It's not that important, I guess, so you could not answer it if you want. But, um, I could not answer it if you do think it's important. <laughs> <laughs> you must have um, but you said like there was different types of Chabad and like Lubavitch just one of them? Yeah, so what happened is that the Alter Rebbe um, had um, a disciple who decided to um, set up his own Hasidic branch of Chabad after the Alter Rebbe passed away um, against the express wishes of the Alter Rebbe. That was kind of short-lived. Okay. Um, that, and he was, the Alter was succeeded by his oldest son. When the Alter Rebbe, when the, the Mitzvah Rebbe, when he passed away, so he was succeeded by his son-in-law and nephew, known as the Tzemach Tzedek, who was actually raised and educated by the Alter Rebbe. So even though he was the third Rebbe, he really was a kind of didn't see himself as a continuation of his father-in-law who came before him, as but a continuation of the Alter Rebbe. When he passed away, his sons all became Rebbes, for the most part, with the exception of one. One became a non-Chabad-style Rebbe. He married the daughter of a non-Chabad Rebbe and like, his father passed away and he tried to do the whole Chabad thing and the Chassidim weren't interested, so he like, kind of adopted the whole non-Chabad approach to things. He was known as Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak of Avruch. But the other ones all became Rebbes in Chabad. And they had certain stylistic and theological variations. Um, so there was Chabad Kapost and Chabad Liyoshin and Chabad Liadi and the smallest was with the youngest son who stayed in the original hometown called Lubavitch. That was great, where he started having Chabad Lubavitch. Um, by the 1920s, all of those other branches died out. And Lubavitch is the only one that survived. So, hence, there's only one Chabad now. But from the 1820s to the 19... Basically, 19, for about 100 years, there were various streams of Chabad, um, small variations on a theme. Of course... 
you know the narcissism narcissism of small differences, right? Like all we're all Jews, we're all Orthodox Jews, and we all keep Torah mitzvahs, right? But then you get like two or three of us together, all of a sudden, like this tiny differences make a huge deal, right? So imagine if you have like three or four branches of Chabad and they're all together in one shul, like it got messy. Um, but anyway, interesting. So um, there are actually some very famous people that are Chabad um, and were not really Lubavitch, um, but as those other branches started falling away, they kind of had a kind of warmth because Lubavitch was on that. So, um, but that's a discussion for another time. Okay. So, the Tanya. So, I'm going to summarize um, the first 21 chapters of Tanya. But the way I'm going to do it is I'm not going to do it chapter by chapter summary. Um, I'm going to summarize the... I'm going to, I'm going to summarize the first eight chapters of Tanya. It's kind of one thing. And then I'm going to summarize chapters nine through 17 as a separate thing. And then I will summarize 18 and 19. And then 20 and then 21. So we'll see how this, if we can finish this all in the next half hour, okay? So the first thing to know is that the Tanya centers around a verse. The verse is Kikarev Elecha Hadavar Ma'id which means um, rather this thing is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the entire first section of Tanya, which we're gonna be focusing on the first three chapters of the first section of Tanya, centers around explaining that verse. So if you have an entire book centered around explaining a verse, the verse itself must be problematic enough to warrant a 53 chapter explanation. Make sense? Okay. So the difficulty in the verse is that this thing is a reference to Judaism. And the context of the word close means it is something that is within your control, within your capacity. The, the, the verse says it's not on the other side of the ocean that you need to send someone to go get it. It's not in the heavens that you need to send someone in the heavens to go get it. Rather, it's close, very close to you. So that means it's something that it, you really can take responsibility for, for yourself. Going back to that idea of Chabad, right? That you're supposed to be able to be taught how to access your own soul and integrate into your own life. That's that idea. Um, and the problem in the, with that claim is that it says in your heart. And it is not intuitively obvious that it is within our control to have the right attitudes, the right feelings towards Judaism. So Judaism has, broadly speaking, two parts. What is called uh, in the verse, Hanigloys lanu, what is revealed to us. Vanistaris lashem lakenu, what is hidden, which is for Hashem our God. The revealed parts are the things that um, can be addressed in the code of Jewish law, in works of ethics. These are things which are fundamentally about how we behave, um, the values that we try to live up to, and thus have a, um, a, a reality to them that is not uniquely your own. In other words, I have to keep Shabbos and you have to keep Shabbos, and it really doesn't matter that I am me and you are you. Now, what matters, matters that I'm a man and you're a woman because that might 
play a role in certain halachas. It might matter that I'm of a certain age and you're a different age. It might matter that I'm rich and I'm poor. There might be objective facts of the matter that change the halacha, right? Or maybe different part of halachic traditions, Ashkenazim versus Sephardim, etc. But at the end of the day, once all of those factors are taken into account, you just have to do whatever God says you have to do. You have to say whatever God says you have to say or not say whatever God says you shouldn't say. Think the things that God says you shouldn't think. Um, value the things God says to value, denigrate the things God says to denigrate, that's it. There is no, nothing in that that is uniquely your own personal experience. But then there's this other side, which is like your own personal experience. Like how do you feel about serving God, about doing his mitzvahs, about abstaining from sin, right? That you have your own unique experience of that that is yours and yours alone, and it's mine and mine alone. And it's in that place that we would expect to find the soul if we things are working right, right? And if we want to be more in touch with the soul, to have the soul have more mastery over our lives. And that does not seem to be so easily within our control. Because if you don't, if, if you're not keeping Shabbos, it's for one of three reasons. Either you don't know how, in which case that's a lack of information, right? You ask someone to read a book. Um, you don't want to, right? In which case, that's just a decision you have to make, right? No one can make the decision for you, right? Or three, you're incapable, either due to like a lack of maturity or a lack of physical, you know, uh, physical capacity or, or, or some kind of mental illness, in which case you're really exempt from the whole thing anyway, right? But in as much as you're a functional adult and you know what to do, it's just simply up to you to decide to do it or not. It's not that complicated. That make sense? Same thing with kosher, same thing with not speaking Lashon Hara. And so, and no one says it's easy, but it's clearly up to you, right? You don't know, ask someone to tell you. Now you know. You're not doing it. Well, either you're capable of making a decision, you're a rational, mature adult, or you're not. And if you are, make the right decisions. And if you're not, well, then you're exempt anyway. But if someone's like, well, I don't feel awe of God when I pray, or I don't feel joy in the privilege of fulfilling a divine commandment, right? Or I don't yearn to be close to God and feel at disgust with material indulgence. I just don't, that's just not my experience of life. And so I said, well you, well, you have to fix that because you know, God does command us to feel certain ways in our heart, right? That's also part of Judaism. We should, we should love God, we should fear God, we should have faith in God, trust in God, joy in mitzvahs. And it's like, okay, well, that's very nice. Um, I can't just like decide to do those things. And that's the difficulty in this verse. How can we say that it's karev, it is close to me, it's within my power, when we're talking about the nistaris l'ashem l'kinu, the hidden matters to Hashem our God, meaning the element of Judaism which is uniquely my own subjective experience. Um, I would like to stop and point out a, an interesting irony. The Alter Rebbe, in dealing with the questions of how to master your own unique subjective experience, writes a one-size-fits-all book. Does anyone think that's slightly ironic? Yes. Okay, why does that make sense? Because we're all one. No. One I'm, soul to like what you're referring no, to. No, no, my, no. My experiences are going to be uniquely my own and yours are going to be uniquely yours. The actual soul is the same. No, so this is what you have to understand is that there's a difference between the structure of something and its unique qualities. And that's very abstract, so I will illustrate it with a simple example. Coloring books. Mm-hmm. If I give everyone the same coloring book, 
And I give everyone, you know, uh, one of those things where they have like, you know, the 150 crayons of all the different shades. Mm-hmm. And I put everyone in a room and say, do whatever you want. Just make sure to color in the lines. That's the one rule I'm giving you. In some sense, everything will look exactly the same. And in some sense, no two things are gonna look the same, right? Mm-hmm. The exact unique quality of how that is is gonna be unique to you, but the structure is universal. And that's actually one of the things that you'll see if you study Tanya, is that it, it is very focused on like just the, the general structure of things rather than making very specific appeals to like very unique kinds of experiences that one person may or may not have. That's important to realize because that means that there is an element of translation application from the, the structure into how it apply in your life, which requires um, self, you know, self-awareness and honesty, guidance of a mentor, nothing you'll find in the, in the book. So um, it's not a contradiction. It's, um, now, the, so he, he sets up the, the Tanya in, in dealing with this question by focusing on the fact that we have two souls. The, the technical terms of the godly soul and the animal soul, um, the godly soul I just spoke about already, right? The godly soul is, is he calls it a chelik el kami mamash, a piece of God from above, literally. Um, just to be clear what that means, it does not mean that we take God and we cut him into little pieces. Um, what it means is that it is a copy of, like a miniature copy of the spheros, just like a child is a kind of a copy of the parent, the spark is a kind of copy of the bonfire, right? like I said before. Um, and there's Kabbalistic significance in terms of the divine name Elokah. I'm not going to go into why that divine name is used, but if you could look in Tanya commentaries that are Kabbalistically oriented, they'll tell you why specifically that name is used. It's not really relevant. Um, and then the description of Mimal from above and Mamish um, literally has been understood in the Chabad tradition is not really referring to saying it's literally that case, although some people do take it that way. That's not a metaphor, but more that... It, that the godly soul preserves the quality to be a authentic um, continuation of the spheros, that's the mimal, while also being tangible enough to be experienced within the human psyche of any human being who is, happens to be a Jew. Right? And there's a, an interesting kind of dichotomy there, right? As opposed to the Kabbalistic approach we spoke about yesterday where you have to um, refine and refine and refine yourself to become able to be able to have these kinds of mystical experiences. The idea is the soul within actually is a active, tangible part of your psyche, regardless of who you are, without compromising its true divine nature. And so that's really the idea there. So that's one soul. And the other soul is the thing that makes you a human being. And a human being is motivated by um, self preservation and, and, and um, personal well-being. And because we are social creatures, we must keep in mind that that does not mean like literally just yourself in a narcissistic sense. It's yourself, your family, your community, your tribe, right? It extends your nation, right? It's all included in that idea. Um, and the Altarebis sets out that more than whether you are what you what you are doing or what you're, which, what you're driven to do, there's a fundamental question of what defines you as a, as, a, as a being. Are you a divine soul embodied in a person or are you a person who has a divine soul pestering them in their psyche? 
Those are two very different lives, right? Now, even if you're a person, that's still complicated. And this is distinct from the idea of having a good inclination, evil inclination, because a good inclination and evil inclination are really just variations on a theme. The good inclination is trying that which convinces you that doing what is right is good for you. And the evil inclination is that which convinces you that doing what is bad is good for you. But they're both appealing to your own well-being. Whereas the idea of the divine soul and the animal soul or the human being is about fundamentally what you are, what kind of entity you are. And so the Jew is faced with this conflict. Okay. Um, and analyzing different rabbinic texts, the altar becomes the conclusion um, that there is this conflict between these two souls. Um, and both, and the, the souls are kind of set up in kind of parallel to each other. So the, we're going to do the divine soul first, the godly soul. So the godly soul itself, because it's, an, it, it's, a, it's like a, the child of the spheros, has the same makeup of the spheros. And just like the spheros are divided into two, there is the first three, Chacham, Bin, and Das, and the lower seven. Why the spheres are divided in that way is irrelevant for right now. But that plays out that the godly soul also has that division. Where Chacham, Bin, and Das are the part of the soul which provide the soul with the sense of God, the sense of the divine. And in the lower seven, they are how that sense of, of God, the sense of the divine, um, ha- finds expression, okay? So what, we, what you usually translate is like intellect and emotion. Because if you think about it, what is it when you are, intellect is a way that you have some sort of sense of reality and your emotions are how you then feel towards that reality. So remember how I spoke about yesterday, how about something kind of goes through you, like a thread? So the idea is that the, the, the divine soul, the godly soul, is capable of truly perceiving God. And those aspects of the soul are called the chachmin and the das. And in as much as it perceives God, that sense of godliness kind of churns within and needs to be manifest outwards. And those were called the, the lower seven or what we would call the emotions, primarily what we would call love and fear of God. Um, and he describes how it, this, the soul, therefore, is really the capacity for these things. You have to actually activate it, which means you have to contemplate and ponder and reflect upon the greatness of God. And because the, the divine soul has this capacity of truly being aware of and grasping and connecting to the reality of God and being affected by it, you're able to produce a divine experience of love of God or fear of God, etc., um, and then that is actually then made manifest and expressed in the world through what we call Judaism, the Torah and the mitzvahs, which is not just the means by which the soul expresses the divinity that it is discovered within itself, but it also becomes the point of contact between the soul and God. Okay, so the, the idea is that doing a mitzvah is like compared to like a hug. When you hug somebody, it's not just an expression of how you feel, it's also a point of connection between your being and their being. Okay, so you have this kind of dynamic where the soul works on genuinely perceiving God. That's the Chacham Bin and the Das. The soul then is moved towards God by that. That's love and fear, which then find expression in Judaism. And the soul actually encounters the reality of God fully, truly, and absolutely in the Judaism. And then this hopefully creates a virtuous cycle. And that's wonderful. But conversely, you also have a human soul which has the same dynamic, but everything is inverted. So the animal soul is driven again towards 
self-welfare, self-preservation, personal well-being. And it has also a faculty of Chacham, Bina, and Das, but there its ability is not to perceive reality for what reality is, but to perceive how reality is beneficial or dangerous to me. Okay. Um, which means in order for the human being to understand anything, they must see a personal interest in it. And what that personal, and then that perception helps guide their natural drives. So that we're drawn to things that seem beneficial to us, we're repulsed by things that seem dangerous to us, and then the mind helps get, navigate that. And that's kind of the dynamic of the human soul or the animal soul. And that finds expression in all the mundane things that we do, such as um, going to work, talking, thinking about stuff, etc. Um, and all of this actually pushes the divine presence away from the person's life, and so there's this conflict between these two souls. That's an oversimplification and summary of the first eight chapters. So then, what happens in the conflict of these souls? Because it's not that these souls can. This is starting now, chapter nine through seventeen. There's no possibility of these souls working out a compromise. Okay, because their agendas are mutually exclusive. Like either it is, you're going to have a life about God or you're going to have a life grounded on being a person. You can't, you can't, you cannot have both. So somebody is going to have to become subordinate to somebody else. And what, when the animal soul becomes truly subordinate to the godly soul, we call that person a tzaddik. And what's symptomatic of the tzaddik is that they no longer have any ungodly experiences. They never, it's not that simply they don't sin, they do not desire anything ungodly, they are repulsed by things that are ungodly, etc., etc., etc. So they, they're a human being in the sense that they have a complex psyche like everybody else, but the principle that organizes the entire psyche is is God present here? Is God not present here? Is God revealed here? Is God not revealed here? Is this the will of God? Is it not the will of God? Which is itself a messy thing. Um, and then you have the opposite where the divine soul has been subordinated by the animal soul. And such a person's life is evidenced by a willingness to sin. How do you know if you're willing to sin? How do you know if you're willing to sin? Do you have thought? If you do, if you ever sin, that shows that you're clearly willing to sin. Now, the point is, is the sin that makes it, the sin is a symptom of the willingness to sin. And the willingness to sin is a symptom that the godly soul has been subordinated by the animal soul. Right. So, so this is what's called the Russia. The Russia is not a Russia because they sin. They sin because they're a Russia. What's the Russia? The Russia is where the animal soul has subordinated the godly soul and thus there is a genuine willingness to sin. Now, you might sin a lot, you might sin a little, that, you know, variations on a theme, but it's all the same. So the most righteous people that we generally think of and the most wicked people basically all fit in the same problem is that ultimately the animal soul has taken dominance over the life of the person and the godly soul is a, a prisoner. One other symptom of this is that you need ulterior motives to do mitzvahs. The fact that they are godly is not in and of itself a reason for you to do them. And this is evidenced by the fact that your enthusiasm to do mitzvahs waxes and wanes based on your ulterior motives. So that would put all of us in which category? Russia, right. Okay, but then he says there's actually a possibility where no, neither soul has subordinated any other soul. 
um, where a kind of stalemate has been achieved. Now, that's not a compromise. A stalemate just means that they're still fighting, but nobody wins. And if nobody wins, then everybody plays their strengths. And what that looks like is the person is not like a tzaddik in as much as they still have ungodly experiences that come from the animal soul. But they are not willing to sin because once we move beyond the level of just raw experience to how we're living our lives, the godly soul has full control over that. So if you would like like an example of what that feels like, it's a little bit abstract. Um, this is a, it may not work for everybody, but the, the, the average Orthodox Jew gets hungry on Yom Kippur. Because they would like to be able to eat on Yom Kippur at some point. I'm, I'm fine with fasting for like 80 hours as long as I have like breaks every five, you know, six hours. <laughs> um, so, you, you, so they're clearly not a tzaddik because if you were a tzaddik, the, the, the very notion of eating on Yom Kippur is just abhorrent because it's like, it's an ungodly thing. So it doesn't even resonate as appealing on, on, on any level to the person. Um, and so clearly not a tzaddik. But on the other hand, the average Orthodox Jew does not actually ever consider eating on Yom Kippur. It's like, should I eat? Should I eat? No one's looking. I can like sneak in the kitchen and get something. It's on the one hand, something that on one level they would like to do. On the other level, they would never do. And it's completely like beyond the pale. Well, what if that would describe like your just general sense of life? That everything ungodly is totally beyond the pale, but you still feel urges and desires and attachments to those things. So you can't say one soul has really subdued the other, right? But clearly one soul has taken control of how you're living your life. And they call that the bainini, which is in between. And then the question is, okay, well, how does that, how is that achieved? Okay. Um, and... In chapter, so in these chapters, he discusses how this is achieved through the godly soul using its capacity to be aware of God, to have such profound experiences of God uh, and his greatness that move the soul so powerfully that even once those experiences fade, the person is changed by those experiences. And even though that change isn't permanent, it lasts long enough before they have another one of those experiences. Um, and as such, they're... They, they have some remnant sense of their deep attachment to God that means sinning or doing something ungodly is totally beyond the pale, even though the overwhelming experience of the divine soul has faded. And this is the idea of, of Hasidic, Chabad Hasidic prayer, where the person involves in contemplation on the greatness of God to the point that it elicits profound experiences of the soul um, that thus motivate them to live a life entirely in accordance with Torah and mitzvahs, and although that, that motivation, that clarity is temporary, it lasts for a sufficient amount of time before they again bring themselves to another one of these profound experiences. Um, hence the kind of old image of the Chabad Chassid who would spend five, six, seven hours a day in prayer every day so that the after effect would last long enough till the next morning, <laughs> you know. Um, and the altar says, well, this is all very nice and good, but not everybody's mind is sufficiently deep and developed enough to be able to do this. Um, and the verse does say it's karev ma'oid, it's exceptionally close to you. Um, and granted this, granted, this is something that is feasible for a person in theory, and every Jew in theory, because they have this soul with this capacity, 
um, to at least make these this sense of feeling that that at least governs how we live our lives, the last say the behavior that we engage in. But it's not, but it's not universal, right? People need a certain level of depth and time on a regular basis to cultivate this. And so starting in chapter 18, he takes a different approach and says, there's actually an innate feeling of love within the soul. And if we can tap into that and utilize that and integrate that innate feeling of love in the psyche, we can bypass the need for having these deep contemplative uh, experiences of God's greatness and that's something that's more universally applicable. Um, and this is what starts discussing in chapter 18. And he describes the, the unique love of the soul that's innate. Okay? Um, and there are four things about this love which make it distinct from love in general. Okay? Number one, love in general comes from our getting to know somebody. In other words, I have to get to know somebody and then based on how I've made sense of them to me, my own model of them, if I find that model of them in my own mind appealing, it elicits feelings of love, right? Which by the way means you can control whether you love somebody or not because you can think about them differently and if you think about them in a way that makes them seem more lovable, then you will feel more love to them, right? This is an important thing because you're going to have a husband and you're going to have children and they're not always going to be so lovable because people are complicated. So if you would like to maintain love in these kinds of long-term relationships, then what do you need to do? You need to decide to think about them in such a way where they seem more lovable to you, which maybe means highlight certain aspects of them and downplay other aspects of them. It's key to successful long-term relationships. Not the only key, but a key. And so the similar thing would be with, with the soul and God. The soul needs to contemplate God's greatness and the degree to which that's genuine and authentic is the degree to which there will be feelings of love. But the innate love isn't like that. The innate love comes because the soul ultimately is a channel of God's presence in the world. So there's a sense of God built into the soul. So that's already a difference. The second difference is that... Um, Getting to know God is something that, that you have to work on. You have to cultivate for yourself. Whereas the sense of God that's innate in the soul is something you inherit. So you get it automatically. So A, it, comes from, it doesn't come from your own personal experience of God. And you don't have to do anything to achieve it. It's already built inside of your psyche deep down somewhere. Um, and because of that, it's irrational in its quality. And what I mean by irrational, I don't necessarily mean that you can't logically explain it. Um, what I mean is that when you love someone else, your love is justified based on your perceptions of them. Does that make sense? But if there's just an innate sense of God that you inherit from within your, from your soul, well then, there's no justification taking place in your psyche. It's like you can't help but love God. Okay. And this is kind of analogous to the human experience of self-love. Right? The fact that you care about yourself is like an innate part of your psyche. It's not justified by uh, how you experience yourself or perceive yourself. Um, and this, this is actually this, this part of the soul, um, which is called Chachma, or specifically the highest parts of Chachma of the soul, um, 
this is also the source of the innate belief every Jew has. It's the source of why a Jew would um, willingly undergo martyrdom rather than be separated from God. And generally speaking, when you love someone, you seek to be close to them. Right? The fulfillment of love is in closeness. But with this love, this, it's not about closeness. Because closeness kind of preserves a sense of yourself. Right? Closeness means you go from I and you to us. But us entails a sense of self. It's just a sense of self that is fused with the other. That's normal love. This type of love is only fulfilled when yourself is totally dissolved in God because it's about the sense of God's presence that's innate. And so this love causes the soul to seek to dissolve away into God. If you would like a physical analogy, um, think of what happens if you were to take a, a candle with a flame and throw it into a bonfire. What happens to that flame? It ceases to be its own entity, right? There is that flame in some sense ceases to exist, right? I mean, the fire didn't disappear, but it's not there anymore in some sense, right? It doesn't have a relationship with the larger fire. There is not, what, the larger fire that was there before is all the thing that's there now. What happened to the flame? It's otherness to the fire has gone away. Being overwhelmed. And that's why I actually use the, the example of a flame in a fire. It's not even being overwhelmed. So this actually makes a distinction um, between that and say like a flame in daylight where it's being overwhelmed. It still preserves its entity. It's just the light it sheds goes unnoticed because there's something much greater than itself. Mm. This is actually like literally there is nothing that makes it distinct anymore. Right? So you have this big bonfire and then you have the flame. And then the flame goes into the bonfire. Saying Jeff with just the bonfire. And the bonfire is really unchanged by that process. And so there's almost the antithesis of self-preservation. It, it's identifying so strongly with, with the presence of God that there's no desire for anything other than the presence of God, even including your own being in relationship with God, um, which correlates to a tremendous fear of anything which denies the presence of God. Anything that denies the presence of God would be experienced as like absolute death or denial of being. Um, and so in this sense, it's a love that's fulfilled not through closeness, but through being subsumed or dissolved away. And it's a love that carries with it an innate existential fear of, of things, which love doesn't normally. So if I love money, it doesn't necessarily mean I have a fear of losing money. Proof being all the people that um, you know, make bad business decisions because they think they're gonna get a lot of money. And because I have a fear of losing money, doesn't mean I have a strong love for money. All the people that are very conservative and don't take a lot of risks, right? But there is, going back to the human being, the, the love of yourself that manifests as kind of a self-preservation also carries with it an absolute intolerance for danger of, to your own life, right? Which is why we become completely crazy and irrational when our existence is threatened. And so it carries that degree of fear as well. And the fact is, this is an innate part of our soul, which going back to the idea that it's, the soul is mamish, it's tangible, which has purchased, has hold somewhere in our psyche. And it's usually triggered in times of martyrdom. And what the altar wants to develop starting after chapter 19 through 25 is finding some way of taking that, going back to the Chabad method and integrating it into our psyche rather than waiting for like moments of martyrdom for it to be triggered. Okay. And so starting chapters 20 and 21 is about how that part of our psyche can become integrated into the psyche um, and even though we may not really feel that love in an intense way, it will have a, a stable 
ongoing effect on us, which will give us that same Bainini-like quality that despite how ungodly our desires might be, we would never go against God. Um, and that I, discussion finishes in chapter 25. We're in the middle of that discussion. So on Monday, we will do the chap- summary of chapters 20 and 21, which we need to do more detail because 22 is a continuation of a complicated theological discussion in those chapters. So we'll do that then.